spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 245, for July 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to Christopher Dorr and Kenneth Atchison about the careers problem in CRM. So get ready to take a second look at your company's hiring and advancement policies, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Heather in Southern California. Hi, everyone. Andrew, also in Southern California. Hey, guys. What's up? And Bill, back up in Northern California. Yep, I'm back. They let me back in. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I'm in Canada, you know, as we're traveling around. I'm not even in the country anymore. And I was just thinking about it. We hit all the big countries of North America in the last like three months because we were in Mexico back in April and obviously the United States. And now we're up in Canada for a month. So kind of fun. Anyway, we have got a couple of guests on who are in other parts of the country, one in Arizona and one in England. I'm going to bring on Kenneth Atchison and Christopher Dorr to talk about a recent paper that they presented about the CRM industry. So welcome to the show, Ken and Chris. Thanks, Chris. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So does one of you want to go ahead and just give us a a quick synopsis on, I guess, what the reason behind this paper is and and kind of what it's about a little bit, and then we'll talk about the nuts and bolts of it? I'll jump in on that one because I think I may have kind of instigated this, although Kenneth and I had both been talking about it and talking about these issues. But there's a labor shortage going on, which is no big secret, and it's happening both in the the UK and the US and and other Mm -hmm. places as well. And you know, questions started to be asked about their, why is there a labor shortage? You know, we know there's kind of a pan economy labor shortage, but why specifically within CRM and commercial archaeology, are there not enough people? And fingers started to be pointing at different places. And one of those places was the academy and that there weren't enough students coming out with degrees to fulfill the labor needs of the the industry. And Kenneth and I are both data nerds. And so <laughs> we wanted to, you know, rather than, than just listening to the rumors, we wanted to actually get some numbers on this. So we started looking at the numbers of degrees granted, and that led us down a path of, it was a missing piece of data, actually, that allowed us to look at the industry more as a system and kind of what was happening to that. But we also answered the question about, are there sufficient degrees and and sufficient people to to come into the industry? Yes. Thank you, Chris. And I'd just like to add to that. And this also, of course, came along at a unique time during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. what COVID-19 was doing. So we were simultaneously seeing, finding out what this, whether there was a relationship between number of degrees being granted and people getting into work, and what the external 
effects of the pandemic were being on commercial archaeology and the political responses and the levers that were getting pulled that turned out to have remarkable impact on demand for archaeological work. And Kenneth, do you do you want to also kind of mention the changing cultural views about work, right, which are also kind of pan-economic, but they've played a role within CRM mm-hmm. too, about attitudes towards work? and Yes, attitudes to work. Okay, as we've all heard frequently over the last year, attitudes to work have changed, I would say, largely as a consequence of the pandemic. And a lot of people being exposed to more flexible ways to work than they had been before. And they realized that they like this. (laughs) They kind of want more of that. And Mm -hmm. so they want to be able to be thought about differently as workers, whether this is then, this then affects their feelings if they want to seek new employment and affects their feelings when they want to renegotiate their position within the current workplace. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting talking about this because I feel like as somebody who I've always done things a little bit differently in CRM, right? Uh, My wife and I traveled around. We actually sold our, well, I guess we didn't sell. We we didn't renew our lease on our apartment or whatever back in South Carolina when we were living back there together and doing CRM locally. And we wanted to work out in the West, but you can't just get a job out in the West unless you kind of know somebody, which we didn't. So we just shovel bummed for a couple of years living on the road, all our possessions inside of a Toyota 4Runner. And that was it. And and we just had a different attitude, I think, than a lot of people towards where we were. I always call the hotel room that we're in or wherever we happen to be. I call that home, you know, and now mm-hmm. we now we live in an RV we have for the last two years. We're always someplace different every two weeks, but we always come back to home. And I feel like not only this sense of a career that you guys are talking about, but this sense of a home that people have that has been ingrained to us is a sticks and bricks address with, you know, some place that you can go back to is so deeply ingrained in so many people that it's difficult to work a career that takes you away from that a lot because you're always looking back to it and you're looking back towards stability and all that's tied into career. And that's where I wanted to go from here next is you guys say throughout the paper here and the, and the presentation that you gave us that you don't, it's not really a, it's not really a job problem. It's a career problem, right? It's a, it's a, it's almost a longevity problem. Can you elaborate on that? Well, in the most simple of senses, There are lots of jobs. There are more jobs out there than there are people wanting to do them. So the the industry doesn't have a jobs problem. (laughs) If I could just jump in there, I think a key thing to understanding this too is what Kenneth just said about people wanting to do them. What we learned about Mm -hmm. from looking at the degrees granted, there are plenty of people trained and degreed and available to do them. But what we learned from this is they don't want careers within CRM and commercial archaeology. So sorry to interrupt you, Mm -hmm. Kenneth. No, no, that's that's exactly right. It's about desire to do this kind of work. And we learned, we've learned about that there are lots of people coming out with the kind of degrees that normally lead to work in archaeology, whether that's anthropology degrees in the United States or archaeology degrees in the UK, and people are finding that. There are jobs available for them and jobs that suit them better. And these aren't jobs in CRM and they aren't jobs in archaeology. The issue is about turning those job opportunities into career opportunities. And as Chris W. has just said, Mm -hmm. some people look for the security of a home base. The last few years have seen a lot of people embrace flexibility more. Right. But... 
this industry isn't necessarily securely offering either at the moment. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, I mean, my biggest question is how come people don't want to do CRM? Is there any information from the surveys that, I mean, what is that telling us? Yeah, you know, that is the one of the questions. And the problem with that is the only people that we really talk to are people, and this was when you know what happened when we presented this this paper at the uh, the CIFA meeting in the UK uh, a few months ago. You know, we heard kind of testimonial stories from a lot of people in the audience who told you know got up and told their stories about their experiences, which which essentially kind of fit our model. But what we're mm -hmm. lacking. You know, we're arguing that a lot, a ton of people are dropping out of the industry after those that choose to go in after a short period of time. And many choose not to even go into CRM at, at all, because here in the States, anyway, the anthropology degree is a pretty valuable degree mm. at, the, at the undergraduate level as well. It's a great skill set. You understand people, you understand culture, international aspects, you have some quantitative skills and employers in many other industries really value that. And the career path is, is a much better path, even looking at it at that point. To what you're saying, Chris, you, with a degree in anthropology, you can get a good job. It doesn't have to be a job doing yeah. Yeah. archaeological work and you get a good, well-paid job. Exactly. With, with security and a home base and a career track and better pay. But the point is, you know, back to, to Bill's point, the people that we haven't talked to are all those people that drop out because we mm. don't have access to them. And that those are the people that, right, we really want to, to talk to, to find out exactly, you know, what, what their stories are, what their experiences were, why, you know, for what reasons did they choose not to or have they chosen not to go into to CRM or commercial archaeology? Okay. I think from the perspective, you know, I did have, I have, you know, had some experience in the business world prior to getting into archaeology. And so I had some experience in, you know, a, another job that was maybe a little bit more typical. And, you know, I think there's, there's various reasons why people are not going into CRM. I think because there's a facade about CRM out there that isn't exactly accurate. I think, mm -hmm. first of all, the universities, not all universities, but many universities, and we talk about this a lot in the podcast, do not represent CRM correctly. There's very little connection or very, very little cooperation between CRM entities and the university where you have CRM professionals coming in and talking to uh, students and telling them what their options are and what is the best pathway forward. Another reason is because on social media, CRM gets a really bad rap. Uh, yes, there are a lot of companies out there that don't, or I shouldn't say a lot, there are some companies out there that don't treat their employees correctly, but there's a lot that do. And on the social media, it almost sounds like, you know, if you're joining these social media channels, you're joining because you want, <laughs> you just kind of want to get an insight into what you should be doing. I mean, I know if, if I was starting my career and social media was out there, that's what I would have been doing, trying to connect that way. And then all you see is, a, you see a lot of negativity on there. And so that's what, starts getting ingrained in people's psyche is that that's what CRM is. And then they think that there's, there's few other opportunities in order to have a good career, which is not true. There's, I know a lot of people who have very good careers in CRM that get paid very nicely. And if you're with the right company, you have very direct career pathing. 
the company I work for, we do we work very hard on that. And I know there's a lot of other companies that do that too. And so having the personal responsibility where people are realizing, okay, you know what, instead of I don't like where I'm at right now, I'm going to change my station in life right now. They just sit in the muck. And I know that that you know, some of it's because they don't realize, they think that that is what CRM archaeology is, and it's not. One last aspect is that this is a very, yes, you can go and use your anthropology degree in other areas, marketing. I mean, there's so, just so many areas, just like Chris was saying, but that's different. This, the way this, our profession is set up is, you know, you do start off typically in the field, unless you have a real strong skill set otherwise. And so you're set, you're set up in the field where these other types of careers, you can go in entry level and have a full-time job right off the bat. And so that is something maybe CRM can work on, although it would be very difficult to be competitive in the marketplace and do that for some companies. Yeah, I, I, mean, I kind of have a response to all that stuff. I, I kind of, I agree with you to a certain extent, Heather, but it's not, most companies are good. <laughs> it's, you know, most companies are not good in my, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. They weren't very good. And, it, yeah. and there's not very many people like us. So, you know, we're looking back after 20 years, but most of the people who came up with us, they're not in CRM anymore. They, they went and did other stuff. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's like an industry-wide problem that folks get in. They're not treated very well from the beginning and they're not treated very well all the way until they get to the point where they have the potential to treat others well. And then, mm-hmm. you know, people who have been hurt tend to continue to hurt people. And that's, that was my experience in CRM, just archaeology in general. But the, the one thing that I'd say about, you know, students, because I work with them a lot, is they want to find something with some kind of security. Because if you think about it, these folks that are in their 20s, you know, they were in elementary school during the recession. They watched their parents and all that precarity that comes along with that. They were born in the wake of another economic downturn. And then they've just gone through the pandemic. I mean, I've talked to students that enrolled in school and now it's their senior year and they've never had, you know, in-person, you know, school. They had, you know, part of a semester when this whole thing first started or one semester and then now they're seniors and this is their last year as an undergrad. And it's like this whole generation, the only thing they've known is, you know, instability. And so if there's any kind of something that promises a level of stability for a couple of years, that is a really attractive magnet. Indeed. Andrew. Oh, I would just say as we're talking about, you know, CRM as a career, I would say the the thing that made me stop the CRM bandwagon or at least put it on a serious pause was the idea of how do I advance in CRM? You know, I think if we want to fix our career problem in CRM, we have to make it obvious to people who get into CRM. How do you advance? What are the steps? I never knew that. And I still have problems with it. I'm like, okay, if I get hired by a CRM firm, I'm prepared to just be a dig bomb, you know, out on the site, but a year in two years in, what are, what are the other steps? Like, where do I go from there? Okay. Yeah. I could be like a crew chief or something, but what, What's the structure of a CRM firm and where can I go to truly have a career? And I don't think I think we do a really terrible job of answering that question for students and for young professionals. That's why we need to have cooperation between CRM, the, the, the business and universities where where we are talking about those things. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yep. Kenneth, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think about that 
the issue of the not then being a, or people not knowing about the career that's in front of them. I think this might be a little bit different in the UK. I think when people work for the big archaeology companies in the UK, and remember, the big archaeology companies in the UK employ more people, more archaeologists than the big CRM firms in the United States. The companies like MOLA or Oxford Archaeology or Wessex Archaeology, they employ hundreds of people. And -hmm. there is a structure there, and there is pretty clear routes to advancement through that. And when people come into the world of work at a place like that, it's apparent to them how the whole business is structured and that this is a mirror of the businesses that you're competing with. The universities that are teaching people might not be making people aware of this. Hmm. There's, so there is a structure, but in the UK, it has a dreadful weakness that these are very flat organizations in terms of salary and progression because the big organizations are all not-for-profits, charities, and they have to publish what their Mm. chief executive or their highest earners are earning every year. And when you look at a company that employs 500 people, but your chief executive is not being paid £100,000 a year, it's called $120,000 a year, that is not comparable with other industries. So because it's so flat, the potential for financial progression is limited and people might Mm -hmm. not realize that when they start off. And this actually will come back around to what I think both Chris and I, just to speak for you there, Chris, what we both think of as one of the biggest problems, which is undercharging by the CRM firms. Mm. All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll take our first break and we'll come back on the other side and continue talking about this problem and the uh and your guys's paper and you know maybe what we can do about it so we'll do that on the other side back in a minute you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 245. And we are talking with Christopher Dorr and Kenneth Atchison about a recent paper they presented a few months ago and, you know, about the CRM industry in both the UK and the United States. And as we closed out the last segment, you guys were discussing, again, the careers problem and the... I guess I guess what was going through my head when you were talking about that is there's there doesn't seem to be a lot of benefit to a CRM career and and Ken you were talking about how in the UK people seem to understand the I guess business progression like you're not going to be a field tech your whole life they understand that there is upward advancement but that being said there's still a 
limited number of companies. And when you're working for somebody like Mola, I think you mentioned that it has, you know, hundreds of field archaeologists. Well, they don't have hundreds of people at the top. They have a, a very tight funnel that leads to the top, you know, with, with very few people working just like any corporation or company would. And I would imagine that in the UK with just, you know, being a smaller landmass, therefore smaller, a lower number of jobs available to begin with across the whole industry, that even when you're looking at that, it's like, okay, I'm sitting here with, you know, 50 new people that started in the last one or two years, how am I going to stand out and move up? And is that even possible? And I, and I see that in the United States as well, even though we have, you know, proportionally more potential careers in this industry available and new companies popping up all the time and companies expanding, but like you guys mentioned, by buying other companies and, and, and no shortage of jobs. But I, I, I'm just wondering how we, how we help people out. <laughs> by telling what's going on, Chris. Or yeah, I was going to you know, one, one thing that people should understand that, that pertains to this is that the mm -hmm. differences kind of between U.S. CRM and U.K. commercial archaeology and the, the right. professional structure that underlies that, which is in the U.S., largely due to the Secretary of Interior's professional qualification standards, which like the registers qualifications are based upon, is that here in the States, we're very degree oriented and we're not experience oriented. And in the UK, mm -hmm. it's just the opposite. It's it's not that entrenched degree structure, and you have to have that that credential to advance within the discipline. It's really based on your experience and your ability to to do the job, mm -hmm. and that's a big difference that makes the career path and career advancement, I think, easier for you know people coming into the industry to see and understand. And where here in the states that it's it's more difficult. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'd say the UK archaeology is different, but proportionally, much as the United States is faster geographically and has a bigger population, there are more archaeologists per head of population in the UK than there are in the United States. Mm. Archaeology is more intense here. Again, that's partly to do with the, I would say, to the nature of the archaeological record and sure. the the way that archaeological work is generated by the spatial planning system. Every time there's new houses being built or a new road being built, there is going to be lots of archaeological work, especially in the cities. See, I'll, I'll take is issue with you here, Kenneth, and we can have a little debate, but I think also part of that issue with the per capita number of archaeologists is who counts as an archaeologist. And I think, right, correct me if I'm wrong, in the UK, you are counting diggers as archaeologists. We're here in the States. We don't count our techs as archaeologists. And so when the numbers come out and people do, you know, various folks, including ourselves, do these counts, we're coming up with very different numbers because of who we include in that count and, and who we don't. Good, good point. If we use numbers, popular numbers that run around my head are at the moment in the UK, our best guess is 6,300 archaeologists. And the number that keeps bouncing around for the United States is 10,500 to 12,000 archaeologists. Mm -hmm. But the United States is not only two times the size of the UK. So, right. so Chris, I'm, I'm really curious about that statement. So how do we know that? Because we have most, you're going to say diggers or technician, archaeological technicians. I'm not sure we don't call them archaeologists in, in the U.S. I know there's an argument of you shouldn't call yourself an archaeologist until you have a graduate degree, whatever. I don't necessarily agree with that. Is, are you saying that's tied to RPA or are you saying 
that the census in general is saying that I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out where you're getting that number from because I'm not sure if I agree with it. So there are a number of things that that lead to that and lead to that opinion. One of which is when you talk to firm owners and ask them, how many archaeologists do you employ? They really consider Mm -hmm. what the the number they give you back are their like full-time employees, which generally don't include the project hires, which are the technicians. So our understanding- yeah, that, but, but that's based on structure of a company, not right. based on, in my opinion, not based on what you technically call an archaeologist. I mean, they're clearly archaeologists. Right, right. No doubt. And it's how we divide them up. Right. So mm-hmm. the best numbers that we currently have kind of based upon the, the you know, the analysis of this paper um, done for this paper is that, you know, kind of, quote unquote, professional archaeologists in the U.S., the, the kind of the full-time career track people, the, the not, let me phrase that, a better way to phrase that is the non-project hire archaeologists. We think that there are like 9,100. Have you compared? Working for commercial firms. And ACRA reports 42% based on their surveys of the labor in commercial archaeology and CRM is, is done by project hires. And so you've got enough numbers now to use that 42% to divide out and figure out, well, how many texts then does that leave us with who are kind of actively working? And we know that people, it's, you know, it's very fluid. People come in, people go out, but there's kind of, if you forget about it, if you don't look at individuals and you just kind of look at, well, how many technicians, how many project hire people are in that pool of available, you know, hires for projects at any one point in time, it looks like, you know, it comes out to about 3,700. And we think, are, right, that they last for about three to five years. Sorry, go ahead. Are you, are you, yeah, are you looking at, um, have you compared this data to census data? I'd be curious. I know that's kind of a little bit behind, but it might be helpful because I don't, I just, I don't know. I mean, if somebody were to contact me, I guess it depends on how you ask the question, but I would count all our technicians uh, as needed and otherwise. That just happens to be a difference in how we pay them or a difference in their standing in the company, but that doesn't mean that they're an archaeologist or not an archaeologist. Is that maybe I, something? I, I agree. I agree with you. You know, though, no, that they're, I mean, this is part of the issue, right? No, of course they're archaeologists and they've, you know, they've basically financially built the you know, this billion dollar industry because they're doing disproportional amount of billable labor and they don't have the overhead on them in terms of all these employment benefits. So they are the most profitable people in the company where senior staff are, are oftentimes you lose money. So the, the financial structure of CRM companies is such that you have to have a very broad pyramid of, of employees and most of your profits are actually coming from your temporary project hires and not your more senior permanent staff. Partially of what Kenneth had said earlier is that the, the marketplace won't tolerate prices for senior people, sure. right? That are, that are high enough to actually make profit on those those senior people. And yeah, we have looked at the the government data, the census data, data, et cetera. And at first, it's really the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You know, I thought that their numbers were too low, but this new, given what we just kind of know about the industry. But as it turns out now, I actually think when you, when you look at these two components, kind of the permanent career track, full-time employees versus the part-time 
temporary project laborers and you, you tease out those components. I actually think the government data now is pretty, is much more accurate than I, mm-hmm. than I did a year ago. I think there's still some problems with it, but it's, uh, I think it's better than, than I used to think. And it matches kind of what we put out in this, this paper fairly, fairly well. And I would, can I just add to that? Okay, in the UK, we don't have good government census data. It's not granular enough to, to be able to look at things mm-hmm. like this. Like, But the interesting thing about people being coming in on temporary project hire, over the last two years in the UK, since summer of 2020, that's kind of come to an end because people are being offered project uh, permanent jobs from the word go. They're, mm-hmm. they're hired permanently. You put on one project, sure. As soon as that project finishes, you're on another one. And the companies are so desperate for people that they don't let them cycle out. And this actually then has led to some of the problems that we were hearing about when we presented this at conference a couple of months ago, when we heard from people in the room who were in that working situation, people who were in kind of middle management, supervisor, or project officer kind of positions, who were just being so exhausted by the constant grind that it's that it's turned into. And they can't relieve that by bringing in new people because there aren't any new people to come in. There is, there right now, UK, there is no spare labor pool. And just as a brief aside, because once upon a time there was, until two years ago there was, because the UK was mm-hmm. in the European Union. And so if the big companies wanted to recruit more staff for short-term projects, there would be people good, competent people coming from Italy or from Spain or from Sweden or from Germany, happily coming to the UK for a short-term contract, maybe stay longer. And now Britain left the European Union and that doesn't happen anymore. There isn't, that pool just isn't there. And so the problem has been simultaneously compounded for UK archaeology by that political decision. Hmm. I just, I wanted to maybe explore a little bit more with what Chris was saying about the concept that management within CRM firms or environmental firms, that they lose profit and that the archaeological technicians are the ones that, only ones that make the profit or are a predominant profit. So I think, I, I think in order to solve the problem, we need to really look at the facts. And I don't, so if you look at any business model or most business models, of course, management is not going to bring in a lot of profit because, well, from that sense, as far as the hours that they're expending, because any kind of business that's a billable type business, but they're the ones that are bringing in the money. So they're the ones that are bringing in the work. So when we look at uh, CRM firms, the billing rates are higher for the management positions because there's a built-in understanding that you, you're not going to be working on as much billable work as, let's say, a technician or an analyst is going to be making. And so you have that pay rates are a little higher, which just kind of perpetuates the problem. However, you know, you can look at that in, in any business, really. Management is not the one, they do bring in work. They bring in work by bringing in clients. So without management bringing in clients, the technicians, the analysts don't have work to do, therefore do not have a job. So I don't think it's as predatory as as we're making it out to be. And I think that that just perpetuates this concept that, you know, the the management and CRM companies are, are 
are, are the ones that are making all the money and the technicians are the ones that are actually making all the profit. I, I don't think that that's a fair statement. I understand where it's coming from because I do think there are some abuses in our, you know, in, in our career. But the one issue I think one problem is that, you know, when you're looking at technicians, there's a lot of people that we work with. They they have decided that they want to go into archaeology and they love the field and they don't have a desire to go into the management. In fact, they don't like the business part of the business and they would rather just be an what they perceive as be an archaeologist. And I think one of the ways of solving this is to find a way to have management or positions of a little bit higher stand or of higher standing with higher pay. And our company has decided to have two different career paths. We have the management career path and we have, for lack of a better term, a field career path. So we have two career paths that are just our ambition is to make them just as rewarding, both on a personal and career level and on a pay level. And so I think that's one way that we could improve the situation that we have in CRM overall. I, I absolutely agree. And but that requires a fundamental change in the in the business model where, you know, instead of requiring you know, your, your project hires to, for example, you know, be a hundred percent billable, right. Which is really like 91 or something, but could you reach your business goals as a company if you cut that in half and by cutting that in half, that allows you to carry people as full-time employees, even if there's not the project work to, to be done and you can use them for other non-billable things, but that's mm -hmm. not the way that our current business model. And that's, that's the investment part of this, right? Why aren't we as an industry investing in our technicians and getting them on a career path? And that doesn't necessarily have to include management, but getting them on a career path where they can make a good wage, they can have benefits, they can have a life, they can have stability and they can advance in, in what they do. But that requires industry to actually make an investment in those people. And when they make that investment, all of a sudden companies aren't meeting their profit goals. And when all of a sudden there isn't a profit, big companies have a huge base. And so the, the fluctuations of project load, you know, companies like Here's Heather, aren't as great of a percentage. But most companies, most CRM companies are very, very small companies. And so when you lose a project, a single project, that means you have to lay off a lot of your staff and it has a much bigger percentage proportion of your, your total business. And so you can't carry those, those people. So, you know, the model's a little bit different. The business model's a little bit different between, you know, your average CRM firm and sure. the big CRM firms are the multidisciplinary firms, but we need we need to look at that model and allow companies to still make money and still, you know, return value to their shareholders. But we also need to invest in, you know, the, the a career track for junior people who are coming into this field who largely enter as part-time project staff with no benefits. Well, how do we get them into full-time positions where we can mentor them, we can invest in their training, we can invest in their advancement and keep them as full-time benefited employees? How do we cut billability by 50% and still make a profit? How do you do that? Oh, that's the profit, the profit margin <laughs> for environmental firms and for CM firms it's roughly between between 10 and 12%. That's a profit margin. So how do we cut yeah. 
technicians billability to 50 percent and still make a profit? Well, there's a problem right there because a 10 or 12 percent profit margin isn't high enough to be returning value to shareholders. And most of the big companies have a a much higher margin than that. But your average CRM firm, Mm. that's right about where they are. But unfortunately, and now, uh, especially with inflation where it is, that's not enough profit to return value. That's something we've never understood well in CRM is the difference between those two, right? That's and, the environmental standard, though. That's the environmental firm standard is between, uh, yeah, I'm telling, it is. <laughs> it's well, it between depends, 10 and it depends on yeah, 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 it depends on which data sources you use, right, to look at that. The, it may be the standard, but that's not necessarily, you know, that's why share prices of some of the public environmental companies don't go anywhere right? Because they're not adding value to them and they're not returning value to their their investors. So there's that problem to start with. The profit margins aren't even high enough where they are now to grow the value of companies. But you're right, you know, so how do we, how do, we do that and how do we change this business model? And there are no, you know, there are very easy, clear answers, which is just you get a, a you know, some financial statements in front of you and you jigger the numbers until they, they work out that way. So on that side, it's not, it's not a problem at all. But how do you compete with other firms in a marketplace if you do that? That is a big problem and a challenging problem. And, you know, I think there are answers and solutions to it. And I think, I mean, I was on a call with Acra firms not too long ago when they were talking about labor a few weeks ago. And, and some firms are doing some really innovative and cool things now starting to address this this issue. And they're things I wouldn't have necessarily thought about. So solutions are coming and they're coming grassroots up. But, you know, then there are many ways, I think, of addressing that problem. But the, the problem's got to be got to be addressed. Everybody has to win. Right. Companies have to make more money, return more value to their shareholders while simultaneously investing in their career paths of junior employees. And, you know, I would add to this whole mess. Right. We see a huge demand right now due to the you know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Great Outdoors Act. And we anticipate we forecast about 5,000 new jobs over the next five years in CRM alone, 5,000 new positions, which is about, you know, a third of the current whole labor force. And everybody's, you know, excited about that prospect. But you have to remember that in five years, that's going to go away. And all of a sudden, you know, so what's going to happen then? You know what the answer is. All these people now, the industry is saying, oh, we've got tons of jobs. Come on on. Come on on. You know, we need you in CRM and increasing you know, maybe adding benefits, certainly increasing wages to get those people in. Those people are all just going to be let go in five years when those, you know, 5,000 jobs now now are gone because that's the, the business model that's that's required. Okay, let's take a quick break because the business model, the APN depends on it. It's not super great. It's not very profitable, <laughs> but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> let's, let's get Kenneth's got his hands up and I know Heather's got more to say. We're going to continue this in segment three for a wrap up on this topic. And then if I can get the host to do it, we might do a bonus segment for our members. So another part of our business model where we wrap up this topic back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to this lively discussion on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 245. And right at the end of the, the last segment, as Chris was wrapping up, Ken, I saw you had your hand up. What do you have to, to say about the topic as well? It, it was just to think about thinking about the business model as applied in the US and the UK. And I was speaking to colleagues in Germany where commercial archaeology is new. The problem is that archaeologists have decided how much archaeology should charge. And then once that becomes accepted and orthodox and accepted by clients, it's very difficult to change that charging model. Mm. It's archaeologists that have caused the problem in the first place by not starting off by not charging enough. It's good to hear what Chris was saying about the possibility that there are some innovative new approaches coming out that might help to turn things around and that they're coming from archaeology. So I think that was a, I really hope, something positive that we ended the last section on. Yeah. One of my big things as a as a very small business owner, and I'm not even really tipping my toe into that market too much anymore. I'm more focused on the outreach side of things. But for the last 10 years, 12 years, really, to be honest, since the iPad came out, I've been looking for new ways to just save money within the model that we have, because it's the only thing I could do, right? And as a small business owner, you know, I occasionally hire people. So I try to figure out, well, how can I provide more value within this budget that, like you said, Kenneth, the, the industry is basically set for me, where the expectation has been set. So how can I provide more value within that? And one of the ways is just working more efficiently and having more of that profit, so to speak, come out of the fact that I have fewer expenses because I'm working more efficiently. But I understand that that's really difficult for larger companies, especially to do, although maybe it's easier in some cases because a small change to them could mean a, a large change when you aggregate that out over over bigger numbers. But I just don't see people thinking that way necessarily all the time. You know, perhaps they are in some cases, but it just doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be where it's going predominantly. Uh, I'm not sure. So, all right. Well, we're we're trying to wrap up this topic here, but it is an ongoing conversation that that we're having in this industry and we have been having in this industry. Heather, I know you were having some comments that you wanted to make to Chris, I think, on that last discussion. Yeah, I totally agree that there needs to be some changes, wholesale changes, you know, across our industry, but it also needs to be wholesale changes within those that are coming in and their um, expectations and the way they look at work. I see a lot of discussions about people wanting to get paid and I see it. We hire, I hire all the time. I see people coming in and asking for really unrealistic amount of money for a minimal job qualification. So they want a position and they want to be in the field and they only strictly want to be doing field. That's what, and I, listen, I would love to do that too. Although I don't know if my body would love it, but, but I would love to do it too. I miss being in the field as much as I used to be. Now I have a little bit more control. I can do that. It's it's still difficult to be able to get all the work done and, and be in the field. So people want to be in the field because that's why they got into archaeology to begin with. Then at the same time, they want to stay at their station, mm-hmm. but they want to get 
higher and higher pay. And in any business, in any career, you have to accept that either you want to stay, you're happy. We hear this all the time in in other careers where people are like, they're given an opportunity to be a manager and make more money. And they're like, you know what? I don't want to do that. That's that's not going to make me happy. And so I'm happy with making a little less because I know that the increase in pay goes with the management, which is more responsibility. More responsibility means more pay. So if we have to start teaching, I think in, in universities and as an industry across the board, we have to start tutoring our, you know, those that are coming in and explaining to them, to them what that means. If you want to make more money, more money comes more responsibility. And it, you may not be able to just be digging the rest of your life. Trust me, as a 50 year old, you don't want to be digging the rest of your life. And so you mm-hmm. have to look forward and you, it's not just uh, companies providing that career path. It's people willing to go on that career path. That I think is, it's got to be twofold. It's got to be coming for the companies and it has to be coming from the employees. Person, just real quick here. I think part of the, part of the problem with the, you know, want to make more money, but you get more responsibility is the disproportionate amount of responsibility you get for the money, right? Like I'll never forget, you know, being offered like a crew chief position and saying, oh yeah, this is a 50% pay, uh, 50, 50 cent pay raise. And I'm like, mm-hmm. 50 cents. Uh, so for like I'm an talking, extra four bucks a day, yeah. you know, I'm talking but, but, more about management, like management right. out of the field. People have to be willing that if, but here's the thing that starts at the field tech level, right? So if you're going to want to start sure. moving up in management and you start with that 50 cent pay raise, maybe mm-hmm. it's even a dollar, you know, great. I can buy an extra latte today, but it, you know, once you go from there, then maybe project manager, but for, to get project manager, you've got to go spend $40,000 on a degree that you're going to pay back for the next 25 years. And you're going to get, you know, maybe a $5 raise for that. Maybe, maybe probably less. And then, you know, maybe in 10, 15 years, you can become a PI in this in this industry that has a lot of competition for those type of jobs. And it just doesn't seem like the the reward is is proportionate to the work and effort and, and what you have to go through to get it, you know, for a lot of people. So and I would just add before Bill jumps in here, you know, um, the yeah. the it's not so much about the money, you know, Heather, and your point about people in other industries giving up, you know, promotions to a management position because they don't want the responsibility. You know, those people at least get benefits, right? Where mm-hmm. the people that we're largely talking about in archaeology, the, the project hires aren't for the most part, aren't getting benefits. They're not getting health benefits. They're not getting paid days off when they're sick. It's those kind of equity things that, yeah, you have to start at the bottom and work your way up. But there's some, you know, ethical, uh, moral things that that we need to be doing about those entry-level people in our industry that aren't happening in other industries. And I would argue that that's why, you know, when we have 10,000 anthropology degrees granted every year, we are still having a problem hiring hundreds of uh, field techs across mm-hmm. the industry. Where are they not getting sick time? I mean, there's labor laws that require sick time, even as, as needed. I mean, these are just, these are things that we need to make sure that are, this is just one example. There, that people in this industry, the technicians need to understand they are, as long as their state allows it, I'll say in California, if you work in California, you have a right to sick days, even as an as needed employee period. So, yeah, the biggest thing about California too, cause I use that as a case study and, you know, I'm from Idaho, so things are going kind of crazy there too. But real quick, I was looking up online and I saw that there's a job posted for California MA 
I don't know where it's at in California, but they're, you know, putting $69,000 to $80,000 a year for the salary. And, you know, in somewhere like Palo Alto or San Francisco, that you can't even actually get a one-bedroom apartment. And if you look at places like Fresno, you can, but I'm not sure if they're giving people $70,000 to live in Fresno. Mm-hmm. And in a place like Boise, Idaho, I know they wouldn't be giving you anywhere close to that. And rents are, you know, $2,800 a month for like a one or two bedroom apartment. And that's, you know, most folks finish college like I did with student loan debt. And, you know, it's just, I, I don't know if the salaries are out of control as much as it is just CRM can't make, they can't pay people enough money. I mean, I wouldn't have made it as far as I did if I didn't have a partner the whole time and it wasn't a dual income house. Yeah. And so, too. I mean, I think that, that that at the very beginning is, you know, one of the biggest problems that I have with students because when they finish at Cal, they can go on to like anything. <laughs> I mean, they, they just finished at Cal. They can go on and get a job anywhere in Silicon Valley making cash, and it's going to be hard for them to, you know, afford it, even if they're working for Google or Amazon or anything else. But they can put in that work, transfer somewhere else, do an HR or marketing or something else move to Phoenix, move to, you know, Boise, Idaho or something like that, move to uh, Nashville and make way, you know, way more than they would proportionally for those places and be set and never need a master's, never need to dig shovel probes, like never need any of that stuff. And so, you know, it's really hard for me, especially talking to students of color to encourage them to go on to CRM when I already know what is what's in front of them, what the pathway is. And to address the sick days thing and, and other benefits. I mean, I've only worked barely in California for, I mean, for California companies. Most of my work has been, you know, either in Nevada and before that in the Southeastern United States and Northeastern United States uh, and different places. And, you know, my wife and I, we worked together a lot uh, on projects. We were only, I think, I think I met her on my first project. So, you know, but after about a year or so, we started traveling together and we were always on jobs that had, you know, maybe the job was three weeks long. Maybe it was two weeks long. Maybe it was a four weeks long, you know, something like that. And there's a lot of companies, at least, you know, this was 10 years ago and laws change, but there was a lot of companies at that time that when you work at that time, sure, maybe if I had gotten sick, I would have been given some time off and I'll never forget getting food poisoning in New Mexico. And I did get time off, but the time wasn't paid. I didn't, I wasn't asked to give my per diem back, which was nice because we were staying in company housing, but it was, uh, it was definitely not paid time off when I had to take like two days off for food poisoning. I mean, I couldn't do anything. And, uh, I don't know if that was legal or not, but it's being it's done. It's not legal. You know what I mean? That's not legal. Right. Yeah, right. Legal. But it's still being done, whether it's not legal mm-hmm. or not. And when people are only working for a few weeks or only working for a session, it's a lot easier for companies to do that because those people are in and then they're right out again. And there's no there's no real recourse for that. Or at least people don't think they have a recourse for that. And if they do, is it worth it when you're working for one company for two or three weeks to go, you know, put up some class action lawsuit or or whatever it is to to take care of that? They're just going to keep doing it because they're always hiring these people, you know, from anywhere in the country, really, and that don't even live in that state (laughs) and and are not going to stay there and sue them for their bad labor practices. So it's tough. I think, yeah, I mean, we still need to have... I mean, obviously companies need to do the right thing, but also, like we said in our last podcast, there's a responsibility. You shouldn't, you know what? Companies should be doing the right thing no matter what. You shouldn't have to be watching your back, but personal responsibility, you have to do that. 
you're going to have to, in order to protect yourself, this is a cruel world <laughs> and people don't do what they're <laughs> supposed to do across the board. Also, employees don't do what they're supposed to do. And so you have to, in, it, the only way to, to control your world is to educate yourself and understand what your rights are. And now I don't, you know, as far as, and I just want to just explain a little further. As far as sick time goes, you accrue sick time based on how long that you that you work, but you accrue it immediately, at least in California. I can't speak for other states. So depending on how much time you've worked for that company, you are accruing sick time. And other companies like mine allow more, but you at least have some sick time. And that that's labor law. Mm-hmm. See, actually for me, what what I'm a bit worried about is that young people, especially, they won't know that stuff. It's like, where do they go to mm-hmm. get their career knowledge? Right. Where do yeah. they learn about sick time? You know, where right. do they learn about like overtime and where, where do they learn when it's illegal or not? Like, I find that that's something that we don't teach anyone ever, you know, and, right. and it, I just think it's so important. Universities should be teaching them. Absolutely. We don't even yeah. touch We're, it. Well, the CRMR podcast is a 300-hour course called the CRMR podcast on, uh, <laughs> I, you know, the industry. I teach that stuff, too. I teach it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Thank you. And Bill, yeah. and Bill, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's only half a joke, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Kenneth, go ahead. Uh, just to come in with a tiny bit of perspective from, from the UK, we, of course, we're in a different situation where the we have even though it can be clunky, we have a national health service. So there is always healthcare. Every single person is asked if they want to be contributing towards their own pension. Every single person in any working situation has sick leave. Every single person has paid holiday leave. So there's the, the kind of the underpinning employment law is different and a little bit substantially more supportive in UK. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just felt obliged to put this out as this will be a nice international podcast being listened to by people all around the world. It is indeed. And actually, the second highest number of listeners that we typically have on this is from the UK. So, And that's a pretty, pretty significant number. So hopefully there's benefit there on both sides. As we are wrapping up this topic, I, I just want to know, you know, I want to give Ken and Chris a final chance to... I guess sum up where where we at where we at now. You gave this paper a few months ago. Are you planning on doing anything in this space? Continuing uh, other papers, expanding on this. What are your what are your guys' plans and 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 maybe uh, any final thoughts regarding these two topics? Chris, why don't you go ahead? Labor is something we're always interested in. Both Kenneth and I and our and the companies that we work for are you know yeah. uh, look at the industry and and the economics of the industry. And so, you know, labor is really hot right now. We're focused on it a little bit, and but it never falls off of our, our radar. And on this particular paper, I think we have kind of loose plans right now, at least to write it up in some form, both in the, the UK, focused on the UK a little bit more, and then the US, focused on the US a little bit more. There's also a big labor paper coming out in the archaeological record by a couple prominent mm. people of which we they, they somewhat led to, to our paper um, because there's some big disagreements between the perspectives of us and, and the other group of authors. You know, and industry is talking about it all the time. ACRA, it's a super hot topic within ACRA. They have a series of calls at the ACRA conference. So, you know, from if people are interested in kind of what the company and industry perspective is on these issues, that's the place to, to tune in. But I guess as a final concluding comment, 
comment. I mean, there's companies, I think, largely historically have misunderstood. They've had a very different perspective on project labor because they're then they never needed to invest in it because they they never had problems hiring anybody. It was all there were always new people willing to come in and take a job as needed. And when people left the company, the companies thought that, oh, well, you know, they went off to work for another company or they went off. They went back to school to work on that master's degree to get them in the career track. And as it turns out, this kind of new, more current, fresh look at what we're what we've been doing here indicates, no, you know, that's not it at all. The companies hire project labor. You know, people generally write out of a bachelor's degree, work them for, you know, whatever, three to five years, work them hard, you know, don't invest them there in a career path. And those people get burned out and leave our discipline. And that hurts everybody. And so, you know, but but it's good. You know, we're we now have some new data. We now have a labor economics and a new market with, you know, demand equation has changed. And that's forced everybody on all sides to start paying more attention to labor labor relations, investment in careers, you know, all the things that we care about. And, and that's, that's good. That's good for all of us. Good for the profession, good for the discipline, good for the industry. Absolutely. Yes. And as, as Chris says, yeah, we're writing a couple of, couple of short papers about this, about exactly what we've just been talking about. It has really opened a lot of people's eyes to the situation. As we went through the first year of the pandemic, there were more people working in commercial archaeology in the UK than there ever had been before. There was more money going into it. There was more profit well, or surplus being generated. So we are aware that we're in a completely different situation. We can't just assume that things will go suddenly go back to it being 2019 again soon. And so we're making sure that we're collecting the good information, good data to let individuals, employers, policymakers make the right decisions as archaeology goes forward. In UK, we're doing some work with FAME, Federation of Archaeological Managers and Employers, thinking about developing a new model for costing archaeological projects, an archaeological standard method of measurement to cost archaeology the way that quantity surveyors would cost other big projects. And it has potential, well, early days, but I think it has potential to be able to recalibrate the kind of way that we charge for archaeological work that might then lead to some of the potential beneficial outcomes that Chris was alluding to earlier. All right. Well, I want to thank very much Kenneth and Christopher for coming on and talking about this this difficult topic. It's always tough talking about career advancement and where we're going in, in archaeology. And, you know, on our last show, we talked about personal responsibility. We talked about taking care of yourself. And that just extends to this career field now more than ever in both the U.S. and the U.K., It's important that if you don't feel like you're being, I don't know, if you feel like you don't have the career advancement where you're at or you're not being treated fairly or, you know, something is going on. As we've been saying all along, there are lots of jobs out there. Depending on where you're working, you may have to travel for these. You may have to even uproot and and move somewhere to go to a region where there is more work because you might be thinking, I'm in central Iowa. There's nothing here. But, you know, 
uh, and there might be stuff in central Iowa. Sorry, Iowa. I didn't mean to disparage you. But that being said, (laughs) it's probably a pipeline passing straight through. But either way, (laughs) you know, speak up and 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 look on shovel bums, look on Facebook, on Archaea Field Text. There's a lot of people posting jobs there and uh, archaeology field work as well. And and go find something else. And and you have the freedom and ability to move around right now and find a position that that you want to be in. I mean, don't just job hop all the time. That also doesn't look very good also. But, you know, go go where you can. This paper, it was presented at a conference. I've got a uh, basically the conference presentation from, from Kenneth and Chris, and we'll include that in the show notes. And they are going to do some other stuff on this topic, and, and maybe we can have them back for that more expanded discussion at some point in a later date. For our members, if you're not a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. It's $7.99 a month to join and continue this conversation. We are going to have a bonus segment where the hosts of this show are going to wrap up this discussion just with our thoughts. Um, as we let Kenneth and uh, and Chris go. And we're just going to have a, a quick little wrap-up on that for the bonus segment. Otherwise, again, thank you guys for coming on. And we really appreciate the, the work that went into this and just people thinking about this side of the industry. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Chris, and everybody. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. 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 Thanks for listening. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Come.